So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For $79 a month, you get over 175 hours of ASHA continuing education with 19 new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the PodCourse subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools to adults to ethics. So be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the number's 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional a speech therapy podcast sponsored by speechtherapypd.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee byway of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, y'all. Today, I'm going to start out admitting that I will be struggling back joyful tears for the next hour because that's just who I am. I mean, my goodness, just doing the, the practice read through, I was crying. So here we go. Once many moons ago, I got a call from a dear friend, a special needs care coordinator about a new patient. And she asked me to pick up a little one stat for a pediatrician. 
a pediatrician that I had frequently collaborated with, and I really liked her. My friend explained the signs and symptoms that the little one was exhibiting, and I worked her in the next week with several requests for urgent follow-ups and urgent appointments, especially a neurology appointment. But it wasn't till I was standing on the doorstep on a quiet spring morning that I realized the referral was literally for the pediatrician. When she opened the doors, my dots connected. Standing before me was a woman of strength, grace, grit, (laughs) a sense of humor that definitely includes lightsabers and fart jokes. And I can attest late night karaoke and my adult beverages. In her arms was a tiny little bundle of joy with jet black curls and bright brown eyes, just like her mama. Y'all, our journey together over the last several years has been one of valleys and mountaintops. And I am humbled to call this pediatrician a mentor, an ally, and most dearly, a treasured friend who has taken her daughter's light and shown it brightly to help countless other parents and caregivers and colleagues across the country and throughout the world through her volunteer work with Feeding Matters. Today, I am laying bare our hearts to have a very intense and personal and passionate conversation. So please allow me the honor of introducing Dr. Tessa Gonzalez. Um, Tessa, I love you. I'm like literally crying. (laughs) Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much. You have me crying too. (laughs) I do that. I do that to people. (laughs) I know. So, hi. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on today. Yes. Y'all, I'd like to point out that real world, right before we both went to record, Tessa's cat puked all over the place and the trash truck pulled up on my end. So, there's been comedic delays to get this episode started. So... (laughs) There we go. Yeah. There's working mom life if I ever heard such a thing. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I knew you first as a pediatrician and in that light, but give us your backstory. What made you want to be a pediatrician and how did you land in Columbia, South Carolina? Well, let's see. I decided to be a pediatrician, I think, in med school when I was in med school, I really actually thought that I was going to be a family medicine doctor. But as I went through my third year rotations, realized that I was just always drawn to the kids in any of those interactions and much, you know, much more enjoyed working with the children than doing adult medicine. And I think what really struck me about my pediatric rotations was that kids were always kids. It didn't matter how sick they were. It didn't matter how many things were going on and what was going on in their lives. They were always kids. And that resilience and the the fun that they were able to have was just, it just made working with them something that, you know, it didn't feel like work. It felt like fun. So I just loved it and, you know, found that there was still so much work that I could do. So, you know, learning and helping people, but with the fun involved. So that's what really drew me to pediatrics. 
And then I ended up after medical school applying for my residencies and ended up here in Columbia. I had actually lived in Columbia as a teenager in middle school and high school with my parents here and then left for college and med school. So decided to come back home where my parents were still living to do my residency. So Nice. Nice. Okay. So... And y'all, I can attest she's also calmed my mom nerves because, you know, boys go through a phase when they're like two where they will not let go of their penis. And apparently that's normal. So like, uh, <laughs> thank you. Break it to you. I don't think it stops after two, but you know, <laughs> it a little bit better. <laughs> Bear, I mean, at least 30 times this past weekend, I'm like, let go of your business. And he goes, <laughs> I just needed to make sure it was there. I was like, I promise it will not go anywhere. It will not go unnoticed if it if it goes somewhere, I promise. Yes, but like, oh my gosh. Yes, yes. It's, yeah, there's <laughs> our children. This is why I have gray hair. Oh, yeah. Okay, so you and I met first professionally. You know, we would, I'd get referrals for your little ones. And then our lives crossed in a unique way. So can you please... Talk to us a little bit about the mama perspective and realities of having a child with a pediatric feeding disorder, because you have two very unique and powerful lenses. And then how, for the SLPs listening, how can we best serve as an ally and an advocate for our caregivers when they're going through the PFD process? Yeah, that's a big question. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) So yeah, Anna Sophia started having feeding issues pretty early on. And I think one of the things that looking back that kind of strikes me now is how insidious it was. You know, it's not like there was ever a moment where it was like, well, things have gone wrong. You know, it was just this mm-hmm. slow deterioration or or not even deterioration, just it just things never quite clicked. And as a pediatrician, I really wasn't concerned at first. She was holding on to her weight at first and doing okay. But then that slowed down and that was maybe a little concerning, but you know, kids grow at their own rate. So eh, maybe not that big a deal. But I think looking back, that that's what strikes me the most is that it just was this slow process. There was just no single moment where we can recognize that things were clearly going wrong. And I point that out because I think that's important to remember as a provider, because sometimes when you come in for the first time and you see a new family and you think, oh my gosh, how did it get to this point? Don't forget that it probably got to that point slowly. (laughs) And, you know, that can it can make it very difficult for families and for pediatricians who are seeing this child frequently, but, you know, you just sort of sometimes lose sight and and perspective of what the bigger picture is. The other thing that as a parent, I remember so clearly was the guilt. You know, when your child can't eat or won't eat or you know, whatever language you want to use, that is so difficult as a parent. It's like the one thing that you're supposed to do as a parent of a baby is, you know, clothe your child, bathe your child, 
feed your child. Like those are the only things that you can do for them. And like, that's the only thing that they need to do as a baby. And when your child can't eat, the guilt there is enormous. And even as a pediatrician who should probably have known better, I felt so guilty that I don't think I sought help as early as I should have. I don't think that it made a difference for Anna Sophia. I don't think I caused her any harm. Mm-hmm. I hope. <laughs> but no, no. I do think that had I maybe known a little bit better or been a little bit more proactive, that maybe we could have gotten things on a different track a little bit sooner. But it just, there's so much guilt involved that it's so hard to reach out for help. And so as a provider, as a clinician, I would encourage you to keep that in mind when you're dealing with families. It's really hard to admit that you can't do this thing that should be so natural and feels like you're just completely failing to do the one very basic thing that you're supposed to do for your child, feed them, and and it's just not working, that guilt there can be enormous. So please bear that in mind and remember that it can be really difficult for parents to reach out for that help and to accept that help. And to hear it. Yes. So... For those of you that don't have children yet, and for those of you that have not experienced postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety, we as a society fall immensely short in recognizing and acknowledging the severity of those diagnoses. And I will tell you that when you get a referral for a little one and their concerns and that baby is only a couple weeks old or a couple months old, y'all postpartum can clinically last, I believe it's 18 months to two years after delivery. And there's research to support that a woman's body does not re- fully replenish between pregnancies upwards of seven years, the level of basic metabolics because they they suck it out of us. <laughs> Poor Theodore. I got when he finally was born and I went back to a dentist, I needed three root canals because <laughs> I lost two cup sizes and had three fake teeth. So it's <laughs> off parenting. But I laugh because that's my default mechanism and I can tell you that my postpartum anxiety was pretty debilitating. So when we're going in and working with our families, we have to recognize that emotionally there is everything that Tessa said, but also what is the unknown and have they been diagnosed? Do you suspect it? Do you have that worry? And that's just me speaking out of my place of postpartum and just putting that spin on it. So yes, you're absolutely right. And then I have to ask the crucial questions because that's what every SLP wants to know. And I know you and I have talked about this, but how much training do pediatricians get with respect to pediatric feeding disorder or afferential dysphagia, like in the course of their like regular academic coursework or residency? Uh, little to none. Um, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> almost none. You know, I think in residency, I can't 
think of any, I can't think of any actual dedicated training that we got on pediatric feeding disorder or, you know, maybe a little bit about dysphagia here or there, but it was, you know, maybe mentioned, but not discussed in terms of, you know, so this is the signs that you would be looking for and here's where you want to go next was certainly wasn't on that level. So yeah, little to none. I think once you're, if you're a general pediatrician and once you're in practice, then, you know, you find that you actually see this quite a bit. And so you get some on the job training, but again, it's not really formal education or or training on this. Um, I think I was very fortunate that I had access to the special care coordinator who you mentioned in your intro. Who we, I love Kim. Oh my God, I know. I love Kim. I think she was instrumental in really, you know, connecting me to you. And then I was able to learn that, you know, there were people who actually helped work on this. This is a real thing that can be helped but we have to find those people. I would venture a guess that most pediatricians either don't recognize PFD as well as they should. I'm sure there's a lot of that. But also, I think the other big problem is that they just don't know that there are ways to help. And as a pediatrician, that's really hard when you see a child that is struggling and you, of course, you want to help them. That's what you do. But not knowing where those resources are is just so hard. So, you know, again, I was fortunate that I had access to Kim because I think she was able to really help me figure out where I could get help for these kids. But if you don't have access to somebody like that, that's tough. Y'all, this is why we engage in interprofessional education. And I know, like I say that, that's like a huge soapbox and like how many freaking episodes, but like interprofessional education, interprofessional practice. When I say take your report, reach out, bring a box of donuts. I mean, COVID's on the down end. So we're close to going back to bringing box of donuts and take your report and business card and donuts, go to the pediatrician's office, print out the materials from the Feeding Matters website and take them with you and say, hi, my name is Michelle Linwood Dawson and I'm the crazy speech language pathologist from this facility and I'm here to educate you about PFD. Okay, don't say educate, but like that's a family <laughs> joke. <laughs> but sorry, when my stepmom got her master's in engineering, she was like, "Look, I'm finally educated." And I was like, "Ooh, ooh no, that's not how we say that." <laughs> <laughs> But yes. Okay. But this is why, because it is one life physically mentoring and inspiring another life that opens the doors. So if you're listening and you're professionally, clinically frustrated for your patients, you can be the source of change to fix that Yep, because it's on us. Yes. Yes. Okay. Okay. So... All right. So from your perspective in the light of parent and pediatrician, how can an SLP help be an ally for these caregivers? One of the biggest benefits that I think SLPs have over, for instance, a pediatrician is that you really get to see a different perspective and and a little bit more than what a pediatrician does. You know, when I see a patient in the office, I get my history, but I rarely get to see anything beyond what the parents are telling me in that 
you know, 15 minute visit. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to make a good assessment in a 15 minute visit based solely on what a parent is reporting. I would argue that we could do a better job, but still there are limitations there. There's just no way way of getting around that. Whereas the SLPs, you guys often get to go into the home. You Mm -hmm. get to see what's going on. You get to sit down with the family and watch them feed their child. You get to see what sort of resources they might have, what sort of strengths and supports they might have, what sort of challenges they're facing. All those things that we in a pediatrician's office, we can ask about, but that's a limited view. So I would encourage you to be aware of the fact that you really are getting this additional information. Don't be afraid to use that information, (laughs) you know, use that obviously to help the family, but also use that to communicate with the pediatrician if you need to. It's not overstepping to take that information that you get that the pediatrician is not going to get and communicate that to the pediatrician and use that to advocate for the family. That's the other, that's the big thing that I would encourage for SLPs to, to remember is that you can be an advocate for these families. It's when you go into the home and you see that they have these challenges or you see a way that you can draw on some of the strengths and supports that they have, you can use that information to help them. And if you mm-hmm. are getting, if you're finding that you're not making headway, don't be afraid to use that information to advocate for your families. Yes. Yes. Okay. So y'all, it is absolutely scary the first time you pick up the phone to call the pediatrician's office. Tessa, I make the students do this. Every clinical rotation, every student I have, I make them write out their thoughts on a piece of paper and then call the pediatrician's office for continuity of care, like to request like OTPT or like GI or whatever we need to. And it's really funny because watching them get all hyped for it, right? They're all ready to go and they've got their script ready. And then the nurse is like, hey, they're unavailable. Can I like just take a message? And then you see like the crestfallen face and I'm like literally my life voicemail <laughs> but it's scary it is scary yeah because I really understand but i yes. think it's a great exercise it is it but it's scary on our side or at least it was for me because what if i say it wrong that's always i mean when i trip over multisyllabic words that's no joke but what if I make a request and the pediatrician thinks like I'm an idiot for making this request? That's always been one worry that I've had. But what I found was by like continuing to make the phone calls and like being a joyfully squeaky wheel that I don't, maybe I just wear pediatricians down and they're like, just make Michelle be quiet. <laughs> no, I think what you've done is you probably just figured out the right system. And I think there are, there are some hints that, you know, there are better ways than others to approach physicians, I think. And, you know, whether or not that's a good thing, it is what it is. And so I think there are better ways than others to approach a a pediatrician. But if you do do it in the right way, and if you, you know, get some experience doing that, I think that can be wonderful. Yes. Yes. Okay. So y'all real quick, a couple of real life examples of advocating for a caregiver. I'm going to start with the unpleasantries. 
because you got to hear the bad to hear the good, right? So several years ago, because I was breastfeeding Goose. So we're, t- I mean, he was a little guy. So like eight and a half years ago, I was working with a little one who was in a foster care setting and got a call from the, actually from the actual pediatrician because the case was so complex and we troubleshooted on the case and the pediatrician raved about what a fiercely wonderful advocate the mother was, the foster mother. I went to the home. It was a hoarding situation for rescue dogs. And the smell of urine was so profound, I almost got sick on the way in. And when I went in, I realized that there were other extreme tendencies, such as extreme hoarding, because they were an extreme couponer. And the list went on and on. And every week I went back and the child looked worse, for lack of a better phrase, like cradle cap had gone from their head down into their face, like across their forehead, eyebrows, and was working the way down their cheeks. And I was a new mom, a much younger clinician, and this was raising all my red flags. And I reached out to the pediatrician's office and expressed my concern. And they said, oh, wait, health is fine. Relay through the nurse. Then I went back and I overheard the mother, foster mother having a conversation with, I guess, their parent. And the conversation went such that the foster mother was wanted in a different state for child endangerment and neglect from that foster care system. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. So I ended up having to advocate on behalf of the patient reach out to the pediatrician's office, relayed that information. They advised me to immediately call DSS while they concurrently called DSS. And DSS came out that night and removed the child from the home and was placed with a secondary foster care mother who had a beautiful track record of taking in some of the most complex quadriplegic cases. And that continuity of care, because the priest, just like you said, the presentation that you get in the office versus what we see in the home, two different cases. Very different. Yes. So, okay. So that's the bad. All right. We'll hold on the good. We'll come back to the good. Okay. So, but I had to keep reaching out to the pediatrician and that was scary. So, I mean, my go-to after that experience, that's when I started bringing people donuts because Mm -hmm. it was like, I need to make them be my friends. And my sister who was in nursing school was like, nurses like food, bring us food. And I was like, okay, cool. So that's what I've done. And it's been pretty good so far. So what recommendations do you have, (laughs) ma'am? So I think in a general sense, I think taking donuts or lunch or whatever is great. I would encourage you to meet a few of the people in the office. If you have one or two folks that you can call on that you know by name who will, you know, recognize you and take your call, that Mm -hmm. is a great in. So, you know, find that front desk person who you can you know, just strike a little friendship with and who will put your calls through. Or if there's a nurse, um, you know, somebody like a special care coordinator, of course, is ideal if the office has somebody like that. But unfortunately, that's not terribly common. But a nurse who you can meet, just anybody that you can really put a face and a name to who can help advocate for you is ideal. So, you know, finding those people that you can call on. And then, You know, from a more specific standpoint, like when you're calling about a specific patient, what I would 
the, the kind of three things that I would, or maybe two things that I would recommend. The first is stick to what you know. So when you call a pediatrician, you know things. Don't forget that. <laughs> you know your practice. You know you know what you your scope of practice as an SLP. Don't let anybody badger you into thinking that you don't know what you know as an SLP. You also know what you see in your encounters with the family, which again, may be very different from what the pediatrician sees in their office. So don't forget that you definitely know things, but I would stick to what you know. So be wary of speculating about things that you don't know. I think pediatricians, I mean, probably lots of people get a little defensive when they feel like they're being told what to do or being told that they haven't done something right. So I would avoid doing things like that. Start from the perspective of, you know, I'm Tessa Gonzalez. I have been working with this family. Here's what I have seen. Here's what I have encountered. Here's what the family has told me. Here's the signs and symptoms that I see in feeding this child. Here are my concerns. The pediatrician cannot fault you for any of that. So start with that. And then be wary of speculating beyond that. You know, if you have a concern for something, it's absolutely reasonable to express your concern. But I would be wary of saying, well, I think this child is X, Y, or Z or has X, Y, or Z going on. So they need this study. Well, that's where you're going to start to probably push buttons that maybe you don't want to push. You might suggest, you know, hey, have you thought about doing a swallow study or have you thought about referring to this person or that sort of thing? But getting too far outside of, you know, the realm of what you actually know can get you into more trouble. <laughs> Can I tell you how many times I've literally done that? I'm like, dude, we've got all the signs and symptoms of this. I'm really concerned for this. Can we please get a referral here for this? And normally by then they're my friends and they're like, yes. But like the first time out, they're like, who are you? What do you want now? <laughs> so yes, do as she says. Don't do as I did the first time. <laughs> I, I think once you build that rapport, absolutely. Then, then yes. once we trust you, then for sure you can make those recommendations. But yeah, it's hard when you, you know, from the perspective of a pediatrician, if I don't know who you are and you're telling me how to do my job, that can be frustrating. (laughs) Maybe, you know, I think that pediatricians could go a long way in being a little bit more open to hearing from other providers, but it's hard. It's hard to feel like somebody is calling you on the phone, somebody you've never met before, who maybe you've only interacted with a handful of times and is telling you how to do your job. That can mm-hmm. be true. So, you know, unless it's a situation of like, you know, this child is completely unsafe to continue any PO trials until I have a swallow study done. Sure. Then, you know, you can say that. <laughs> you can say, I'm sorry, I can't continue this because it's not safe, you know, until I have more information. The pediatrician can still say, well, I'm not going to do it, but that would probably be silly. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't really further the goal of uh, getting the child, you know, okay. doing what we need. But just be a little wary of speculating about 
what you, you know, what's going on. There might be, you know, for instance, there could be lots of other things going on. You as an SLP, of course, are going to be thinking about, you know, gosh, well, we should do a swallow study or we need this or that. But the pediatrician may also have some other information that makes them think, well, I don't think it's a swallow issue. I think we need to send this kid to pulmonology or cardiology, or, you know, they may have a completely different plan that you may not have thought of. So that's what I'm saying. It's not that you're wrong to suggest one course of action. It's that the pediatrician also has other information that you may not have. And so putting out there what you're seeing, what you are concerned about allows the pediatrician to integrate that information into what they already know, and then come up with a plan going forward. Okay. You said something that hit all the trigger points. The pediatrician has additional information. Most speech pathologists that work in early intervention rarely get medical records, if we do. I mean, there's one guy out in Lexington that regularly writes scripts for pediatric aphasia eval and treat. And I'm like, mm, that's anomia. That's word retrieval. Like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not the thing that you think that it is the thing, but like, you know, that's cool. So I say that because and still so many years later, we still do that, but whatever. Right. Anywho, we don't get the medical records. Right. So when we go in and we see the signs and symptoms, I mean, we're piecemealing together on breadcrumbs that are scattershot. Absolutely. And that's incredibly frustrating. And I mean, I've had straight up had a nurse at a pediatrician's office tell me point blank, well, you work in home health. You don't need the records. You're not attached to the hospital. And I was like, how am I supposed to work with this child who has Down syndrome and two PDAs if you don't give me the medical records? And like, luckily, actually, one of your colleagues heard the conversation and she intercepted the phone call and was like, oh, no, it's not even just two PDAs. Like we're headed for like major open heart surgery, but changes my plan of care with respect to PO trials, you know? And so I say all that because that's a point of system breakdown that on our end, when you get the script, you have to, as the practitioner, reach back out to the doctor's office and say, hey, can you please send me the records? Because I need more information as to what's going on. And especially if you get the referral from an early interventionist or a service coordinator, most of them are they're not kids, but y'all like, let's face it, a lot of them are in their early 20s. It's their first job and they don't know that we as the licensed professional need that information. So ask the EI to reach out to the pediatricians to obtain that records and give it to you. Yeah. Sorry. Huge soapbox there. No, I, I agree. You need that information as well. I, you know, I'm not surprised that you got pushed back, but I, it just seems so ridiculous that you would be asked to treat with no history. I, you know, thank you. I don't know what oh. to say. <laughs> I agree with you entirely. Yes. So sidebar conversation, let's get together and have a conversation about the state early intervention system because we're still battling that. And you'd think by now that would be resolved. So, okay, wait, ADD, I had a thought and then it flitted away ever so quickly. What about reports? I mean, do you actively receive private practice OTPT speech therapy reports? Like, honestly, as a professional, did you ever actively get those? Um, I often got them in order. Well, I would get the plans of care, you know, every, what is it, three, six months, yeah. something like that, yeah. um, to, to sign those. And I'd say most of the time I looked at them 
But I can't say that I did that every single time. I would often look at the, you know, kind of the bottom line, like, where's the kid currently? How do they seem to be doing that sort of thing? But I think it depended largely on what was going on with that particular child. If it was, you know, ongoing therapy that had been going on for a long time and and there weren't, you know, any huge acute issues going on, I might be a little less inclined to read the report super carefully. But yeah, I got them and signed them. And I would also, I definitely would review them to make sure that there wasn't something in there that I did need to address, you know, request for a referral or a request for something else. But I would say I would not rely on those plans of care or or any other sort of, I don't want to say official communication, but, you know, those sort of things that just sort of go to the pediatrician's office and get put in front of the pediatrician for a signature is probably not the best way to actually communicate something that you really need the pediatrician to know. That would be better for a phone call or, uh, you know, a message to the nurse or something like that. Yep. So what I have found is that, I mean, even just even working at the clinic that I just transitioned to, I mean, some of my coworkers weren't regularly sending out 90 day planning cares. They didn't know that that was required because, you know, they had transitioned from public schools. They had transitioned from inpatient hospitals and with inpatient hospital, you don't have to do that. And so, I mean, cause you're, you just put the note in the chart right then and there. Right. And they're also not there for 90 days. So fair, but that's been one point of system failure I've seen on our end as a profession is that we're not getting our plan of cares out. We're not getting our initial evals out. We're simply not communicating out. And then all of a sudden when we do need something, the pediatricians are like, well, wait, I didn't even know you were treating this kid. And I'm like, mm, I got to take ownership over that. That's on us. So y'all, even if you're within the early intervention system, you're still a medical practitioner because you are billing insurance. You have to prove medical necessity. And when you're doing that, your 90-day plan of care, your evals, your discharge summaries, those have to get to the referring physician's office. Even within the framework of early intervention, if you're billing insurance, there has to be a script on file. There's a script on file. We owe it to that practitioner to give them our documents. And this is also why don't write a 14-page report, make it short, sweet, to the point, concise, but functional. Yeah. And I would say I was much more, I did typically read through the initial evals much more thoroughly because usually those were coming relatively soon after having made the referral. I kind of knew why I had made the referral initially and was interested in seeing, you know, what the SLP had thought and what their plan was going to be going forward. So Mm -hmm. those, I would definitely encourage you to get those to the pediatrician. You know, once you've got a plan going, those 90 day plans of care, I think, again, you know, I agree, those need to be documented. There's just no, you know, they have to be documented. But because those may not be read quite as thoroughly, if there's something that you really need the pediatrician to know, or that you're requesting of the pediatrician, I would do that, you know, certainly document it in the plan of care if necessary, but also maybe put it in a phone call. Yep. See, two point of contact. Yes. Yay. Also, please know every time I wrote one and like knew you were going to review it, it was just like, oh God, is it worthy? (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, "Ah," you know, like you, you you just, you make sure it's good content. (laughs) No pressure, Michelle. Don't suck. (laughs) 
<laughs> okay. Not that bad. No. <laughs> oh my God. Okay. All right. So I'm going to be honest. I have seen stuff from pediatricians that have left me absolutely livid. I mean, hot mad. Like my iris up to the point that like my neck gets hot. Right. And that's just like there's some pediatricians that are great for working with children that have special needs. There's some pediatricians that are not great at that. Just like there's don't give me the child that needs to work on fluency. I will not make that any way, shape or form better. That's not my cup of tea. Right. And so we all have our strengths and weaknesses. And I mean, I charge in like a bull in the China shop. So there's also that too. But some of the point of system breakdowns, I have had gone out and done a home session. Um, I went out to one little girl. Um, she has since passed away. She had uh, Rett syndrome and the mom was feeding her in a semi-reclined position. The child was had gone without early intervention services for approximately nine months after she received her Rett syndrome diagnosis because the pediatrician's office told her there wasn't anything that they could do for her. And I had worked with that office enough to know that that was probably an accurate statement. And so when I sought to understand why this child had not been referred to early intervention and I repeatedly called, they gave us no referrals anywhere, wouldn't really care to bring OTPT on, doesn't really change the outcome. And mom kind of looked at me with tears in her eyes and just said, I'm done. What do I do? Like my kid needs this. And I'm like, so let me tell you about my son's pediatrician. (laughs) Blessed. Dr. Bartlett has gotten a lot of patients because I'm like, I'm so frustrated. And we got a, you know, I politely said, you know, you are entitled to a second opinion from pediatrician, occupational therapist, physical therapist, and your speech language pathologist. You are always entitled to a different one. And they changed. And Wholeheartedly, I think it was a socioeconomic status and racism component in that families received care. And that's a brutal reality that is not unique just to the South, but it's sure is profound in certain areas and zip codes that I travel in. So what do we do? What do we do then? What do you recommend then? Because I can't tell you how many times I've said, hey, you're entitled to a second opinion. And then I just like help transfer patients because. Right. I mean, I think that is absolutely acceptable. I think it's. This sucks. Sorry. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> no, it is hard. I mean, I have absolutely told families, both families of children who are seeing me or who are seeing other providers for, you know, maybe a specialist or something like that. It's not about good doctors and bad doctors. I mean, are there bad doctors? Absolutely. But that's not really, I would say that that's probably not the best way to approach it. Mm -hmm. The point is not every physician, not every SLP, not every, you know, any provider is going to be the right fit for every family. And so that's where I try to to land and, and try to remind people is that this person may just not be the right fit for you and your family. And one of the most important things in any provider-patient relationship is that relationship. And if you're not able to have that type of relationship with your child's providers, you need to make a change. And so sometimes just reminding the families that they they, number one, have the right 
to change if they're not, you know, happy or are not, you know, finding the the care that they need. Just reminding them can be helpful, but also reminding them that that relationship and that connection is important. You know, I think some people don't, you know, there's so much paternalism in medicine and a lot of authoritarianism and and all those bad isms that I wish we could get away from. Some patients love that. That works for them. The family wants that kind of relationship with their physician. And if that's working for them, that's great. If it's not, then they need to be aware that they can make that change. But you also brought up a good point that there are other systemic and structural barriers to that, whether it's racism, socioeconomic status, literacy, language, um, all of those things are barriers. And so if you find that you have a patient who, you know, you've talked to and, and you, they do seem to realize that maybe a change would be beneficial, sometimes you still have those other barriers in place because they may want to change, but they may just not be able to access something different. And so that's where I would ideally try to pull other resources. I mean, you know, certainly if you can help directly, that's one thing, but there are resources that can help. So, you know, there are other organizations like Family Connections and other things like that, where you might be able to tell a parent, you know, why don't you contact this organization? They can probably help you look for providers that might be better. They can help you with language services and interpreters, and they can help with insurance questions. They, you know, those kind of things that, you know, you as an SLP, that's not your job. And so, but at least be aware of the other resources in your area that might be able to fill in those gaps. Yes. Yes. So, I have found some great partnerships and community supports. Family Connections is a South Carolina nonprofit that acts as advocates for individuals with special needs. A lot of different states have variations of that. A lot of your state Medicaid programs, you may not realize it, but if you dig deep enough, there's often a transportation resource for your families that don't have reliable transportation. I had one family that the mother had a seizure disorder and she hadn't had seizures in, you know, a couple of years, but she wasn't allowed to drive because of her seizure disorder. And so, you know, having that as an option for transport so that they can get a second opinion, whether it be a pediatrician's office or a GI or a neurologist, or maybe their child was diagnosed with a rare and profound disability and they need to get to the only specialist in the state, but that happens to be very far away. And I mean, no joke, Tessa and I both volunteer for Feeding Matters, but did y'all know that they have a scholarship for patients that's given out that, and one of my friends received it for her little one, and it paid for them to go across state lines to go to Cincinnati Children's Hospital, where the child finally got a diagnosis and on the healing path, right? But it took seeing subject matter specialists to get to recognize that this wasn't behavioral picky eating, that it was in fact like debilitating eosinophilic esophagitis. So there's that. And then, so, okay, we circle around to this and we've talked about it previously, but one thing that I don't see is, and we do need to do better. I would love it if 
as a profession, as speech language pathologists, we actually leaned in and submitted a call for papers to actually go and submit a call for papers to a pediatrician's conference, to a GI conference, because they don't know what we know. We don't know what they know. Embrace IPE and actually go. I mean, make a presentation, but then while you're there, sit and listen to the other lectures. Because, I mean, you have to learn too and be willing to learn. Rar. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I think we are in the medical sphere far, far, far too siloed in our own individual practices and our own individual specialties. Even within medicine, that is the case too. You know, the longer I've been in it, the less these distinctions between specialties seems to make sense. You know, how can you separate one body system from another? <laughs> They're all connected to the same person. <laughs> that just doesn't make sense. But at the same time, I understand, of course, one person cannot obviously have the depth of knowledge in every single specialty area that, you know, you would never learn all of that. So, you know, I understand, but there needs to be more collaboration. There just absolutely needs to be more collaboration. We all need to be willing to listen and learn and especially learning from other people, other specialties, because ultimately, of course, you know, our goal is to provide good care. I know that I don't know everything that I need to be able to do that. So finding those other providers that I know I can call on if I have a question is imperative. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. We have a few minutes left, but can we talk ever so briefly about a feeding tube journey? Yes. Okay. Really truthfully, when I first started out, I thought as a practitioner, as a former silo practitioner, I wholeheartedly felt that if a child needed a feeding tube, that I was failing, that I had failed somehow as their feeding therapist. And it took me time to realize that for some of our patients, a feeding tube is an ally and a source of healing and that this is not the enemy and that it wasn't a reflection of my skill set. But that was a learning process because in school, we're taught make everybody full PO. And, and that was a hard process. So walk us through, lady, walk us through. I completely understand that perspective because, I mean, I very much mm -hmm. had that same perspective. I think I had that perspective both from the perspective mm -hmm. of a pediatrician. You know, we, I think as pediatricians, we see feeding tubes as you know, it's a method of last resort. And, you know, it's viewed as this thing that should, you know, we don't want to get to that. And, you know, so there's definitely a, you know, of course, we use it. And, you know, there's not like a stigma from that standpoint. But there is definitely a perspective of, well, we need to try everything else first. And gosh, if we fail all of that, you know, again, that word failure, and then there's a lot of language around failure in general, when it comes to feeding issues and failure to thrive and all of that sort of thing that, you know, it might be nice if we changed some of that language a little bit. But I agree, as a pediatrician, I definitely had that kind of perspective. And as a parent, I absolutely had that perspective. When Ana Sophia, you know, kind of to, to come back to this idea of guilt that I talked about earlier, when Ana Sophia was getting close to getting her feeding tube, mm -hmm. I was mm -hmm. the one that 
brought it up. I remember sitting in Kim Conant's office and I just broke down crying. I said, you know, I don't think that I can do this anymore. We, Ana Sofia is now, she was almost 18 months old and we were spending, I mean, it was, yeah, 45 minutes to an hour, every single feeding, every three hours, we were getting her up at 6 a.m., going to bed until 9 or 10 at night, and somewhere in the middle of all of that, trying to get her to nap, trying to get her to do other therapies, trying to play with her and cuddle her. And, you know, it just, we just couldn't do it. Don't forget, and I, I love you, stinky face. <laughs> I love you, stinky face. She loves that book. But I sat in Kim's office and I said, you know, I, you know, I knew that the newborn period would be like that. I knew that, you know, there would be this constant feeding and, it would just feel like this never ending cycle, but she's 18 months old and I don't see this ending and I can't do this anymore. And I said, you know, I was like, I asked her, am I a terrible mom? (laughs) Am I a terrible mom for not being able to do this and thinking of other alternatives? And of course she said, I was not a terrible mom and that, that, you know, this was probably the right time to start talking about it. But I have, I mean, it's been more than three years now since she got her tube. The fact that I was kind of the one that I felt like I was the one that gave up first because I was the one that sort of brought it up. And that still leaves some guilt. I think getting her feeding tube was absolutely the right decision. (laughs) I don't regret it for a second. It was, you know, it has made such a beneficial effect for our whole family, but man, there's still guilt there. So yeah, that feeling. You didn't give up first. You did not give up first. You were the first to advocate for a change. So let that guilt go, love. I I know that in my more rational moments, (laughs) I can agree with that. I know that that is probably like, that is probably the case, but you know, it's so hard to. Yeah to give up that, let go of that mom guilt. So, but I can tell you absolutely getting her G2 was probably one of the best decisions we've ever made for her. The change in Ana Sofia, both from, you know, just her health, obviously finally getting the nutrition she needed. She started crawling within weeks Weeks. of surgery. And I, there's just no way that that was not related. I think it was just finally having the, the strength and the you know, from adequate nutrition for the first time in a very long time. But just the overall, it just let us, it's odd to think that introducing this very medical, very foreign thing into our lives, let us be parents again, where before we had just, I felt like all we ever did was try to feed the poor child, (laughs) tried and failed (laughs) to feed the poor child. And so getting her G-tube, although it certainly wasn't fun and it's a surgery and we had, believe me, we had plenty of problems with the G2. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but yes, yes, there were <laughs> yes, plenty of problems. So, you know, which I bring up because I think some people are like, well, yeah, but you know, what about all the bad things that can happen? Well, we had plenty of the bad things and still I uh-huh. can say unequivocally that it was the best thing we did. For Anna Sophia. She is so much happier with her tube. We can relax. We don't have to worry 
we know that she's getting the nutrition she needs. We're able to focus on other things, including helping her eat in a way that makes her happy. So her papooses and fish sticks and all the things. She loves it. She loves it. She loves eating now. And I do not think that we ever would have gotten to this point if we had just had to continue force feeding her. How can you enjoy that? There's just no way. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I have to say, y'all, the feeding tube was a hard decision for me to come through clinically because baby girl never aspirated. It was, we never had a history of an aspiration event. And when we had swallow studies, they were beautiful, but it was neuromotor planning that led to the increased time that it would take to get in. And that was an increased time is an understatement. And on this side of it, this is one of those cases where quality versus quantity. Once the pressure for the quantity was removed and y'all could just enjoy dinner as a family. I mean, it was also to see the joy come flying back. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just like, like you could feel a difference in the air. But the constant worry, I can't even... I found the other day going through some old files on my computer, the spreadsheet that I had for months, years yes. maybe, of yes. Anna Sophia's bottles. And yes. I started crying looking at them. You know, I, every single day that she came home from daycare, I would enter in what they had put on her daily sheet from daycare, you know, two ounces here, three ounces here you know, ate well, didn't eat well. I left notes for myself on this spreadsheet. And every day it was, you know, 18 to 20 ounces. That's all she was getting every day. And every day it was this battle of, well, gosh, do we, you know, she's exhausted. She wants to go to sleep. Do we put her to bed or do I keep her up and try to get another two ounces in her? Knowing that that two ounces probably I mean, did it matter? I don't know. It felt like it mattered, but also she needed to sleep. And I mean, it was horrible. This every single day, just counting literal ounces every single day. And that's all I thought about was, is this enough? Is, you know, she was one good illness away from ending up in the hospital from dehydration there, you know, it just, she was just at this nice edge every single day. And you can't function as a family doing that forever. It just, it doesn't work. So the feeding tube let us stop with that. <laughs> you know, I continued to keep track of some of her feeds for maybe a, another month or two after she got her G-tube. And then I stopped. And at some point on her feeding journey, I was able to let go of counting her calories. I don't count her calories anymore. That was a big, that was a big change. Um, <laughs> I don't want that anymore. I just let her eat. You know, I can't express how much of a burden that is on a family. And the time, of course, was another huge burden. Those are the things that I would encourage SLPs to try to remember when you're seeing a family and when you're, you know, talking about changes and interventions is don't forget that this is the real life of a real family with a real child. And 
of course, the family wants what's best for their child, but sometimes it's just not realistic. And Mm -hmm. sometimes we need a radical change, like a feeding tube or something else to really let that family thrive as an entire unit. To go climb the mountain. Yep. Yes. Also, I did have the pupusa that you recommended at the street fair on Saturday. How? Yes. But how did she eat the whole bloody thing? I got halfway through and was like, oh my God, there is no room. (laughs) Like eight pounds of cheese. I know. I don't know. That whole thing. She eats about half of it. The rest of us ate the other half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was like three people sharing one half and then Ana Sofia got the other half. So yeah. It yep. was amazing. I got, we, my girlfriend got the spinach one and I got the bean one and then we split them in half and was like, oh my gosh. And then Goose was like, I would like some. I was like, no, you had your donuts. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah. She, she just loves that thing. Oh, it's so good. Mm. Lady, you are a phenomenal professional. You are a phenomenal mom. And your baby girl, both of them are better because of that. So thank you. And hell, you make us better. So, all right. If someone wants to learn more from you, where can they go? Well, I have done, as you mentioned, volunteer work for Feeding Matters. And I've also done a few presentations for Real Food Blends, which I think were recorded. I am not 100% sure about that, but um, I might be doing some more in the future as well. So feel free to check those out. For Real Food Blends, I specifically talked a lot more about Ana Sofia's feeding tube journey. So if you are curious to hear more about that, that's where I've talked a lot more about that. And I would be glad to field questions by email. That's probably the best way to reach me. So if, if anybody wants to shoot me an email, it's simple, tessag at gmail.com. And I'd love to hear from you. Oh my gosh. Thank you. Okay. Hold tight. I'm going to switch this over. And everybody, this is Dysphagia Awareness Month. So happy belated Pediatric Feeding Disorders Month and happy Dysphagia Awareness Month. And don't forget that this month we I've partnered with a Dysphagia Outreach Project. So we have a 10-part mini-series called Understanding Dysphagia, and it talks about dysphagia across the life continuum from NICU to end-of-life care, head and neck cancer, Parkinson's disease, all of the above. So please go check out our 10-part mini-series podcast, Understanding Dysphagia, also brought to us by speechtherapypd.com, and every one of those episodes is eligible for an ASHA continuing end credit through speechtherapypd.com. As always, love it when you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts um, and check us out on at First Bite Podcast on Instagram and the Facebook page. Tessa, thank you, lady. Thank you so much. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www. 
feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Thank you.